Hello, I'm Sean Owen and welcome to Warwick Podcasts. I'm here today with Dr. Rebecca Earle from the Department of Comparative American Studies at Warwick University. Rebecca's research focuses on Spanish-American history, including the cultural history of food, which we'll be talking about today. Her most recent research explores the importance of diet in creating the Indian and Spanish bodies that underpinned Spain's colonial universe in the early modern era. Rebecca, your research compares early Spanish settlers to Brits abroad in terms of their eating habits. Um, How important was diet to the early Spanish settlers? Well, I should say that my researcher doesn't, so I'm not so much making comparisons into the eating habits of Brits abroad because that would be, that's a topic in its own right. What I'm interested in is the way in which Europeans in the early modern era, in the period when overseas colonization was taking place, I'm interested in the ways in which they thought about the relationship between themselves and their bodies and what role food played in that. So the way in which effectively they, their identity of themselves as Europeans, as Spaniards, as Catholics, was connected to their ideas about what they ate. In particular, they were really, as you said, very concerned that eating the wrong things would have terrible effects, not just, you know, on kind of, you know, maybe give them stomach upset or something like that, although they also thought that too, but that it would completely transform them. I mean, they were um, almost superstitious beliefs. So I suppose, um, as you mentioned in one of your papers, that obviously as European Catholics, eating bread was a very Christian thing to do. You know, the bread is the body of Christ, whereas tortilla wraps aren't, you know. Uh, do you think that had something to do with it? I think all of these things are really tightly bound up together. So that what they were, they were concerned about... Well, I should say it's not superstition in a sense. It's perhaps not even the right word because this was learned medical thinking. I mean, it wasn't just kind of, you know, the odd, crazed Spanish view. But if you read medical texts, it would they would explain very clearly that what you ate affected the whole structure of your body and that affected your personality and that if you were kind of melancholic and a bit moody, if you ate the right foods, that could help sort out your melancholy. Which is actually an idea that I think isn't so different from some of the ideas that we have now. Using food as a medicine, as a way of correcting your mood. If you get grumpy, you should eat less sugar. You should eat more of this. You should eat more of that. You should drink less alcohol. I mean, there's a whole kind of industry, which I think is is not completely wrong. Yeah. Why do you think that the early Spanish settlers found it so abhorrent that the physicality would change. Part of the reason is that these you know, Spaniards were not in Spanish America just on holiday. They were they very quickly decided that they were going to colonize these regions, they were going to live there, and that the peoples who were living there already were going to be, on the one hand, incorporated into the Spanish monarchy, but in a subordinate position. And that maintaining that difference between Europeans and Amerindians was central to that whole process. If Spaniards started to slowly turn into Amerindians, I mean, who was it who was going to be bossing people around and who was it who was going to be doing the work? These divisions were really central. So on the one hand, the Spanish justified what they were doing by saying, well, we're bringing the true religion, we're bringing the beautiful Spanish language, we're bringing our generally superior culture to these peoples, and we want them to adopt all of these better practices, and they should eat our food too. But they were always worried all the time that if this happened, and if actually Amerindians became just like Europeans, that division between who was being colonized and who was doing the colonizing was going to collapse. So there was this kind of all the time anxiety about, could you eat these foods? Could you not eat these foods? If you ate these foods, would you turn into an Indian? If you didn't eat those foods, would you stay healthy? Should Indians eat European foods? Should they eat their Indian food and carry on being Indian? It was a complex and difficult conundrum. Yeah, The Spanish settlers did like the chocolate though, didn't they? They liked a lot of foods. It wasn't that they got to the New World and said, "Mm, don't like any of this, all of it's (laughs) 
horrible. I wish I'd brought my red wine. I mean, they it, it was more complicated. They liked mm. chocolate. They loved pineapples. They were quite keen on chilies. They liked a lot of the foods that were kind of incidental detail that weren't the bulk of your meal. And the thing that really worried them was the starchy foods, right. which were the things that formed the bulk of both the European diet at that time. I mean, bread was what bread was practically a synonym for food for people mm. in Europe, and also, in fact, played a similar role in Amerindian culture. That was the thing they really worried about. Part and the the thing that you mentioned about bread being the only substance, wheat bread, being the only substance that can become the body of Christ mm. in the Christian Mass. I think symbolized the centrality of that that one foodstuff, and that was the thing that really was at the heart of of their identity. Yeah, and it's so interesting because today the foods that they discovered in Latin America at the time are so integral to our everyday diets now. Oh yeah, I mean if you think about sort of a, you know really well, I don't know like in 1992 I think it was Robin Cook who said chicken tikka masala was the British national dish, and okay if we're going to take chicken tikka masala maybe with a side of chips, I'd say it's <laughs> a really a classic dish. You said the potatoes come from Peru, the chili peppers that make that dish spicy come from Mexico. Central America. Mm. So do the tomatoes, which are tomatoes, which make that um, that distinctive sauce. Mm. So many of the things that we think of as being typical British. If you don't like chicken tikka masala, you could say a roast dinner. I don't know. I mean, Christmas dinner or roast turkey with you know roast potatoes on the side. Mm. All of those foodstuffs, turkeys as well as、mm. potatoes again. Maybe a chocolate pudding for dessert. I mean, all of those things are foods from the New World. So we've learned to eat lots of things that、mm. were completely unknown to Europeans 500 years ago. Yeah, it's incredible, really, isn't it? If you think about it,、um, I mean, I think the maybe the example of you know sort of settlers coming to a new country, having lots of issues with the food, it kind of echoes throughout history. I think even today you can see that happening. Maybe people in China, for example, are more embracing a Western diet, but there are concerns over health issues. You know, oh, it's dairy products. Will we get fat? Will we have more cardiovascular diseases? Things like that. Do you think that's a fair statement? I think it's true that people's concerns and anxieties about consumption often. Get Get reflected through concerns about health, and sometimes I mean I don't mean to say that concerns about health are just a superficial cover for something deeper, but that there's what you think is healthy and what you think is unhealthy is in kind of dynamic tension with all kinds of other historical forces. So that you don't just say, "Here's my list of what's healthy. I'll eat that. I won't eat that." But your list of what's healthy has to constantly change and evolve. And so when Europeans met all these new foods, like you know. The chili pepper. They had to sort of decide: is this, you know, is this a healthy food? Is this an unhealthy food? Can we eat it? How much is good for us? And the way in which they came to those conclusions are deeply shaped by their own history and culture. I guess that's what I would say. And I mean, these、um, issues. That, I mean, some of the anecdotes are really quite amusing. For example,、uh, the, the Spanish didn't want to eat the same roots because they thought it might they might lose the hair. It might sort of change their Spanish appearance. And、oh, I'm really worried about beards.、Right. Beards were this. There's a wonderful quote from one of the sources I was reading that says. I mean, this is a man writing. He said something like, "The beard was given by God to men to beautify and adorn the face." I mean, <laughs> like it's you know, that's sort of the equivalent of you know a really nice necklace. Or something like you know, it's sort of this special thing that it's they, they talk about beards a lot, and in fact, they're interesting comments that、um, the Spanish often commented when they write in the 16th century chronicles about how they thought they were being perceived by Amerindians. They'll often mention. Oh, the Amerindians were very impressed by our beards. You know, they saw these bearded people and were very astonished. And it's 
it's actually it seems that that's not completely crazy because mm. there are also some good indigenous sources describing indigenous reactions mm. to Europeans, and they also say odd oh, people with beards came. You know, I mean, there's everybody seems to have picked out the beard as a Spanish thing. But anyway, the reason I think that they partly were focusing on beards was not just that it is sort of this cultural value thing that you know men have beards and women don't, and that's why men's superiority is manifest mm. to all, but also because many Amerindian peoples don't men don't seem to grow as much facial hair. I mean, that seems to be a genuine physiological difference. And the Spanish were really concerned to explain why that was. You know, why didn't they have these gifts from God? And that was a all the more difficult question, given that, as Christian teaching made clear, everybody must originate from a common ancestor. Everybody was a son of Adam and Eve and of Noah. So at one point, Spaniards and Amerindians, Europeans were quite certain, had had common ancestors. So they must have had beards, right? So what happened to the beard? You know, where did the beard go? And there were lots of different explanations by Europeans as to how Amerindians became the way they were. And those explanations always involved a combination of climate, they lived in very hot places, and diet. So Europeans would explain that the the really hot climate of the New World impeded your, your sort of internal heat. It was so hot outside, you didn't have enough heat in your belly. And that heat, you know, lack of heat in your belly didn't push out the facial hair on your face because facial hair needed this kind of, you know, fire inside, which is why women don't have beards, right? Because they don't have as much internal heat. They're kind of <laughs> colder and wetter than men, and so they can't grow beards. And on top of this hot, moist external environment, which messes up your internal heat, Europeans always said, and they're eating really lousy food, which doesn't stoke up that internal furnace. They're eating inadequate, unnourishing foods like potatoes, like sweet corn, like manioc. That's what you make tapioca from. I mean, all of these foods. And so they, the combination of the bad diet and the bad environment meant they didn't have any beards. So this was then, just to finish, I mean, the, the problem then is if the Europeans are living there and they're living in this hot, wet place, if they eat all that unnourishing food, what will happen to their beards? And it would be a disaster. Well, I mean, it would just be a total collapse of their entire masculine yeah. identity. It's so fascinating and like I say, some of the anecdotes are to us quite amusing but obviously quite a serious issue to them at the time. But um, just to move on slightly, I mean, how do you think the history of food sits within the framework of global history? Well, I think food is one of the really global substances because mm. it travels, well, as you said, it travels all around the world that we eat things that you know are from very far away now and often think of them as completely local. We don't mm. think of them as exotic imports. We don't think the potato, my goodness, that's from Peru. That's you know really far away. We think the good old English potato. So food is something that travels around in really interesting ways but then can become very local. Mm. But the ways in which it travels are completely explainable historically. So it's absolutely a part of a historical process. You know, Chiles get to India from the New World through, by European colonists. It's the Portuguese who, when they're colonizing and settling in places like Goa, bring chili peppers mm. from the New World. You know, the diets of places very far apart get altered and connected by particular historical processes that we can explain. You know, not just by the vagaries of, you know, some people like spicy food, so they eat spicy food. But, you know, how does that spicy food get from one place to another? Yeah. How does the taste for spiciness travel around? Yeah, and it's very fascinating. And, I mean, just to throw this in just at the end, um, do you think uh, research into the history of food can teach us any valuable lessons on 
maybe how to cope with a global food crisis? Well, that's a tall order. That's a big question. The historians are not very good at making predictions about the future. I think that's something we're, we're not particularly, that's not our forte. But I think that what, I guess that what we can learn from thinking about the historical processes by which new tastes evolve, have evolved in the past, is that we can know that, that what people eat and what they don't eat is on the one hand very, very flexible and that people can learn to eat all kinds of different things that are unfamiliar, mm. but that people's tastes are not infinitely malleable and that the, the areas where there's flexibility and the areas where there's less, less flexibility are things that we can try to understand by paying attention to the history and culture of a particular region. I mean, white rice is really important mm. to to you know to China to Japan to a whole number to a whole you know com- complex of cultural ideas which is not going to be easily altered so if you just come along and say well you know rice is not really expensive have you considered eating sweet potato this isn't necessarily going to be an easy sell whereas if you said if you picked on some less resonant food something that wasn't as deeply embedded and said could you, you know, consider substituting this for that that might have much greater success, just the same way that the Spanish were happy to eat pineapples. And they would say, pineapples are really good, better than any fruit in Europe. I'd prefer a pineapple. But they did, you know, if you said, would you like this tortilla? They'd say, no, I'd rather have my piece of very old wheat bread. There's a beautiful quote from one 16th century chronicler who says something, he talks about tortillas, and he says, okay, you know, Indians like them. And then he says, I myself would much prefer a piece of wheat bread, no matter how hard or black it might be. So, you know, you you can see there are areas of flex and areas of rigidity. And we can understand that by thinking about the history of those cultures, I think. 